Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord had came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and he is a going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's around seven on a Saturday night last November. I'm spoon feeding my infant son some combination of mashed up veggies and he's doing everything he can to tell me that he's more of a milk for dinner guy. <laughs> Hank's asking for seconds, Simon needs a glass of water and I've still got to bathe Amos, do three days worth of dishes and clean the house before I get the kids and myself in bed. That's the scene. I've got three children, six, four, and nine months at the time. Uh, Kirsten, my wife and their mom, she's out of town with some friends for the weekend. She gets back tomorrow, and I'm trying to do everything I can to stage the house to make it seem as if I've had things completely under control <laughs> the entire time. That's when the doorbell rings. A salesperson holding a, a, a gift box of, of chocolates uh, to sweeten the deal has come knocking at complete random to tell me about this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get in on some cable, landline, telephone, Wi-Fi bundle package. Seems like I've caught you uh, not at the best moment. Uh, is this the wrong time? Yeah, ma'am, this isn't a great time. No problem. When can I come back that you'd have more time to talk? I'm reeling. I did not expect that there would be a follow-up. When, when would be the best time to talk to me about a landline telephone and basic cable? 20 years ago? You know? That's what I'm thinking. I, I came up with something, ate the chocolate she left behind, stuck with my Wi-Fi provider. That's how Easter feels for some people. 
Uh, here I am barging into your life like a door-to-door salesperson here to tell you about this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity which has the potential to sound to you as outdated and unhelpful as a landline telephone, uh, a relic of the past that you're surprised anyone still has, much less there's people out there peddling this thing. And look, that woman didn't want to offer me chocolates. She wanted my credit card information and an annual contract. And here I am with treats and a smile. But you're thinking, I don't care how nice you are, man. I don't care that you offered me above average donut holes and below average coffee. I don't care that you don't immediately seem completely crazy on the surface. You're here to talk to me about a first century Jewish peasant who rose from the dead somewhere around the turn of the first century and that resurrection means something defining for me right now, right? That's the gist? Yeah, okay, then why don't you just leave the chocolates at the doorstep because that sounds about as helpful as a brand new landline. That's how Easter can feel for some. And so I want to offer an alternative picture, one that I think more accurately captures the spirit of resurrection. November 9th, 1989, 28 years after Germany's largest city was forcefully cut in half, divided ideologies that refused to cooperate had split the city in two, and then the Berlin Wall finally comes down. It's a public display of hope and triumph and love. And shortly afterward, on Christmas night of that very same year, Leonard Bernstein composed a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy, right there on the rubble of the wall. He assembled musicians from East and West Berlin, musicians who had been kept sharing from sharing sheet music for three decades. These once divided people then came together for a performance that was globally broadcasted and the hairs on the backs of a thousand necks stood on end as hope rose from the rubble below. What is that? I mean, is that just a fool waving a conductor's wand to sentimentalize unimaginable human evil? Or is it a courageous act of hope, pulling back the veil on a truer story than the tragic one that had been staring them right in the face represented by the rubble below? Is that senseless romanticism or is it a profound moment of clarity? And where do you build your life? Uh, on the stark reality of the division and destruction that stares you right in the face for 28 days worth of years, or on the moment of hope that pierced all the monotony with a better story. So look, you can relax. I don't want your credit card information, and I'm not here to sell you a landline telephone. The truth is this, that I actually do believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the most decisive event in human history. But it's not because I bought the spiel of a door-to-door salesperson. It's because there was a time when that event intersected with my own story in such a way that the resurrection of Jesus was the best possible explanation for the life that I'm actually living. It was more like the sound of hope rising from the rubble of the chaos, a sound that pulled back the veil on a truer and better story than the mostly dull, occasionally tragic one I'd gotten used to. It was a profound moment of clarity, and it awoke something in me that's never been able to go back to sleep. So if for you, today is mostly just like a B-level holiday about bunnies and brunches and pastel sweaters, then you're probably just stopping by on your way to overpay for avocado toast. And if that's you, I want to say thank you so much for being here anyway. You're so, so welcome here today and any other day. And there's others among us. And for you, you've got a really personal explanation of when this event called resurrection intersected with your own story in a way that actually did change things for you and actually is reforming you from the inside out. And if that's you, I want to say happy Easter to you. He is risen.
So I want to talk to you about this moment of clarity, the way that you talk about any other kind of moment, through these two really simple questions. What happened and what does it mean? So first, what happened? Pope Benedict wrote, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. An event and a person, that's what happened. One of the things that distinguishes Christianity from other faith movements is that it traces its origins back to a definitive event. That is not true of Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, or atheism. That event is resurrection. And an event means that sentimentalizing Jesus isn't really an option. It means that Jesus as an admirable figure or a respectable teacher doesn't actually work with the history. An event is an all-in play. In the words of C.S. Lewis, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And that's putting it mildly compared to the Apostle Paul who said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But of course, to consider the resurrection of Jesus is to show up in the middle of a story. It's like seeing just one single scene from an entire film. And Jesus was a teacher, respected by academics, as the greatest moral philosopher to ever live despite having no formal education. He was a miracle worker whose documented healings are so numerous and broad that he was either supernatural or he was a magician the likes of which makes Houdini jealous. He he was a radical, claiming to be the king of an invisible but very real kingdom that was going to outlast the Roman Empire. He was an unparalleled influencer, a man who never wrote a book or held an office but somehow left behind a legacy that outlasted all the royalty of his time or any other time. And ultimately, Jesus was a martyr who held to his claims to his final breath. And Christians make a really big deal about the cross, but the unique thing about Jesus' death isn't that it happened on a cross. Plenty of people died by crucifixion. The unique thing about Jesus' death is that it was promised and given. Right, it's quite significant that Jesus' death isn't just some unfortunate accident that a couple of wrong turns led him to. It was something that he was outspokenly moving toward intentionally his entire life. He said himself in Luke chapter 9, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus predicted his death on nine distinct occasions in the three synoptic gospels, and in Matthew 16, we're told that he spoke his death, of his death from time to time, leaving it open-ended how many number of other occasions he brought up the subject, all to say Jesus' followers made a big deal about his death because Jesus made a big deal about his death. He was pointing to it as particularly significant. But his death was also given. I mean, Jesus says a whole lot of things like, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. My life is given as a ransom for many. And this is the greatest love, to lay down your life for your friends. So according to Jesus, his death wasn't the heinous act of a barbaric God. It was love. The most profound expression of love from a God who's relentless when it comes to love. An event and a person. That's what happened. What does it mean? Well, every major philosophy is really just trying to answer these four great questions, origin, meaning, destiny, and morality. How do we get here? What's the point of it anyway? What happens after we die? And how do we live in the meantime? And that seems like as good a frame as any. So origin, how do we get here? Well, the biblical book of Genesis emerged from an ancient Near Eastern world with a number of creation myths. 
Every other creation myth is about a battle between a pantheon of gods where the victorious god that either kills or subdues the others then creates out of that victory. The, the Genesis story is unique because it imagines God in harmonious community. All to say that every other creation story imagines that God in the deepest part of his character is power. And Genesis imagines that God in the deepest part of his character is love. And that creation is not an act of domination, but an act of love. It's more like a happily married couple going, you know, the love that we share is so good. What if a little bit of me and a little bit of you could come together to form another? And we could direct the love that we share completely at that other. So page one of the Bible is entirely about love about perfect love between God and people walking together in the cool of the day, and perfect love between people and people, naked and unashamed, literally and metaphorically, in each other's presence. And as beautiful as that first scene is, the second one is equally tragic, and it's all the more familiar. The forbidden fruit was tasted, and a perfect love corrupted. Genesis chapter 3 Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In this moment, naked and unashamed, a perfect view of the self was replaced by insecurity, anxiety, self-consciousness. And perfect union between people relationally is replaced by uh, perfecting, pretending, presenting, self-interest, self-obsession. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now they've gone from walking with God to hiding from God. Uh, the distance that we're so much more familiar with, the creator becomes not knowable and intimate, but instead hard to know and even harder to trust. And if you want to see the effect of the Genesis story, you don't have to do a deep dive into ancient literature. You can just look at the world all around us. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek, Mc sorry, Dr. Vivek Murthy wrote in the Harvard Business Review, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, but loneliness. And that's the word that we use for the separation that uh, entered the world between person and person in the book of Genesis, loneliness. Current research tells us that, that the number of close confidants, and close confidants defined as the sort of friend that, that you'd call to meet you at the movies on a Friday night or you'd call to meet you at the hospital in the middle of the night, that the number of close confidants in the average American has declined by a third in the last 20 years to the point that 53% of American adults claim to have no close friends at all. See, the arc of human history is bending increasingly away from one another, not toward one another. We're living in a story of increasing separation, not one of increasing union. The deepest need, uh, the deepest human longing is to be fully known and fully loved. The greatest human fear is to be fully known and unloved. And so the human experience that we tend to settle for is to be unknowable and therefore unlovable. And then the word that we use to represent separation from God that gets explained in Genesis is shame. Now, shame is different than guilt because guilt is about behavior, but shame is about self. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is something is wrong with me. Guilt is I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame is I'm sorry I am a mistake. And shame is unfortunately very easy to experience, but it's very hard to define because shame is a storyteller. It's a force that gets into our guts and then tells a story through our lives, often a story we would disagree with cognitively, but we still can't help living it actively. 
And there are endless varieties of the stories that shame tells. I am the middle child of three boys, born to the most emotionally present, healthy, loving parents that any kid could ask for. But birth order matters. And so I am a middle child who grew into an adult who frequently struggles with attaching my identity to achievement, who at his worst prioritizes productivity over people, and who looks for affirmation as a means of security and value. It's classic, right? How did that happen? Well, I don't know exactly, but, but I can say for sure this, that I'm suspicious that it has something to do with the fact that when I was a kid, uh, I found some success in sports. And then that became the place that I got my parents' undivided attention in a way that I didn't share with my brothers. I achieved, I succeeded in a way I could measure and see, and that won me love. An undivided, unshared kind of love. I suspect that has a lot to do with it. And then there's the story Brennan Manning tells of an elderly nun, a nun who had served faithfully nearly all of her days, and then at 78, after he finished speaking at a weekend seminar, she shows up at his hotel room at three in the morning. I've never told anyone this in my life, but when I was five years old, my father used to crawl into bed with me at night with no clothes on. She goes on to describe the unspeakable abuse that endured throughout her childhood that she had carried in silence for over seven decades. And now as an elderly woman, she was finally unbandaging a wound she had hidden from sight but lived from internally her entire life. There's endless variety to the stories that shame tells. There's dramatic versions and there's subtle versions, but what they all have in common is this, that it's fear, not love, hum humming underneath every last one of them. So look, you can dismiss the Genesis story if you want. I mean, there's other options out there. But you cannot ignore the Genesis diagnosis. Every last one of us is haunted by the looming clouds of loneliness and shame. And that is what the Bible calls sin. It's less a moral judgment and more just an honest diagnosis. Something has gone wrong, horribly wrong, and the consequences of it are of the broadest and most personal variety. It's as broad as genocide and world hunger and systemic injustice and a pile of rubble in Turkey and another school shooting, this time in Nashville. And it's as personal as shame, loneliness, and the incessant struggle to be myself and to find myself. The theologian Kenneth Leach sums it up. So in the biblical teaching about the fall, what is outlined is not an event which happened to a solitary couple in paradise, but an event which happened to the species Homo sapiens and its historical development. Creation is you are the masterpiece of the original artist who looks at you with eyes of love and love only. Sin is, and the fight of your life is gonna be believing that. Because every other force within this world and every other force within you will try to convince you that you have to drum up your own lovableness, to become lovable in your own eyes, to become in your own eyes what you already are in God's. And to believe in resurrection is to believe that the creator's version of the story overcomes mine. That the God who created by love, who is love in his essence, also redeems by love. And that his great passion is to redeem every square inch of creation and to redeem every square inch of me. Then there's meaning. Any sincere search for meaning has to deal with Jesus because no other rabbi, shaman, mystic, or philosopher has ever claimed what Jesus claimed. He is the sole person in the whole of human history to claim to be the meaning of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
I am the direction that gives life a coherent purpose. I am the meaning that makes sense of a complex world. I am life at its most potent and most full. These days we can be so easily put off by a statement that exclusive, right? You do you, live your truth. That's how most people use the word truth today in the exclusive claim sense. But there is another more ancient definition of the word truth, and it has less to do with uh, the claims of exclusivity and more to do with direction. Right? If you shoot an arrow and that arrow then flies straight through the air, it would be called a true shot, meaning the arrow's been designed perfectly, and so it flies perfectly where it's aimed. The, the way its truth is proven is by using it. And so truth, in the most ancient sense, is something that is taking you where you're aiming to go. So is who or what you are allowing to give you meaning, taking you where you're aiming to go? Is it true? And is it proving true as you're using it? Is it shaping me into the best version of myself? Is it moving me in the direction of peace or anxiety, in the direction of love or self-centeredness, in the direction of joy or melancholy? Is it joining me to a story that is big enough to enliven the human soul with courage and perseverance and sacrifice, or is it an endless spiral into the self? There's this troubling rumor these days that the Bible ends with God sweeping all the believers away into a faraway paradise, like the world's a sinking ship and you can load onto this lifeboat if you hear the news in time. And if that's what you've been looking forward to, I'm so sorry, but that's just not the story. The juxtaposition at the heart of the Bible is the, re the renewal of this world, not the beginning of a new and different world in some faraway place. God's not trying to get people into heaven so much as God is trying to get heaven into people. And the surprise of Easter morning is not that there's hope somewhere in some faraway place beyond this life. It's that there's hope right now today within this present life. Resurrection isn't only about security after death, it is about meaning right now. Not a reserved spot and a faraway paradise, but the restoration of God's very good creation. It is the rebuilding of paradise right here on top of the rubble. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. That was the reaction to the first witnesses to resurrection. Afraid yet filled with joy. Resurrection might have made their ultimate future more secure, but it made their present life more immediately complicated and risky. But at the same time, it made that fear worth walking through. Finally, something bigger to live for than just the endless toil of Project Self. Finally, something big enough to give my whole life to, not just my final resting place, but my here and now, living, breathing, daily, minute by minute life. Resurrection does not mean happily ever after. Resurrection means afraid yet filled with joy. Uh, a resurrection doesn't mean a perfect life or an easy life. Resurrection means a life that is so charged with meaning that you'd actually want to live it forever because you're finally experiencing life at its most whole. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If the resurrection's just a rumor, then you do you. Live your truth. But is who or what you are allowing to give you meaning true? Is it taking you where you're aiming to go? Is it proving true as you're using it? Is it making you the best version of yourself? Is it big enough to live for? That is the real test of truth. And then there's destiny. When my flight landed, 
I already had 11 missed calls from Yvette. So I called her back, sitting right there on the runway, and she didn't even bother to say hello. She just said, Tyler, it's Jason. I got to her house as fast as I possibly could, and I sat with Yvette right there at the kitchen table. Jason, her oldest son, lay deceased exactly where they found him on the living room couch just 10 feet away. He was 28 years old. He left behind parents, siblings, a daughter, and a church of which I was the pastor. And as we sat there waiting for the coroner to arrive, a few family members passed around cheap slices of pizza on styrofoam plates. And a few other people offered equally cheap platitudes, though they were well-meaning. They felt empty even as they were coming out of their mouths. And Yvette looked right at me, sitting there at the kitchen table, and she said to me, Tyler, do you really believe that Jason is finally at peace? The first witnesses to resurrection were not gullible religious fanatics. They were grieving women. They were carrying ancient spices to a, to a tomb. The, this is the ancient equivalent to uh, flowers to a grave, meaning the resurrection story, it becomes more profound the nearer you get to suffering. The most scandalous part of Jesus to modern years is probably his claim to be Lord. The most scandalous part of Jesus to ancient years was that he, the Lord, would suffer. A God who weeps? A God who bleeds? A God who dies? I mean, God on a throne, sure. God on a cross, Never. And I understand why it's such a shock that God would suffer, but I also think that a God who doesn't suffer probably isn't a God worth trusting. Because without the courage to take his own medicine, to crawl down here into the darkness with the same desperation and helplessness as the rest of us, how could God be trusted? Without suffering, how could God help anyone cope with suffering? The psychologist David Benner says it like this, ultimately we need a meaning strong enough to make suffering sufferable. This is the crucial test of any life meaning. It has to help us live life. For it to do that, it has to help us cope with suffering. Most modern people give very little thought to the inevitability of their death. We, we pass our days under the illusion of immortality, and that works most of the time. It gets us by on most days. And then our flight lands, and we've got 11 missed calls, and we find ourselves sitting across from Yvette at the kitchen table, Death kicks the door down and it robs us of that illusion and it leaves the living behind asking the questions that we used to blissfully ignore. That's what happened to Leo Tolstoy who wrote, my question, that at which the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there anything I have that death cannot take? Because let me tell you something that you know but have found a way to ignore most of the time. You are going to die. One day in the not too distant future, it will not matter where you go out for dinner or if you find that hidden gem on Zillow or how good you look with your shirt off or what's next to your name on LinkedIn or how important you feel when you walk into a particular room. You are going to die, and you can't take any of that with you. Are you ready to leap into the void without anything that, makes you, that you've accumulated that makes you feel secure? You don't have to be morbid, but at least dignify your life by considering the options. The French philosopher Luc Ferry says, all philosophy is really just about one thing, death. 
And in his book, A Brief History of Thought, after exploring a number of different philosophical routes to dealing with the ultimate problem that everyone who's ever lived ultimately expires, he, openly an unbeliever, says this, the Christian response to mortality, for believers at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. And by doing so in terms of individual identity rather than anonymity or abstraction, it would seem to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory. Only Jesus gives us a picture of love that's stronger than death. Because when Jesus carried that cross on his back, he was carrying more than just a cross, but the weight of all creation. He was carrying the consequences of all human wrong, the weight of all human suffering there on his back. And the claim of resurrection three days later is there's a kind of love that outlives death. So there I am, sitting at that kitchen table across from Yvette, and she looks me right in the eye. Tyler, do you really believe that Jason's finally at peace? And it wasn't a philosophical question. It wasn't something she was wondering about in some distant and far off way. This question had a name and a face and a story and he was laying 10 feet away from us. What would you tell Yvette? Without the resurrection of Jesus, Yvette's left in her grief. There is no he's in a better place. There is no he's at rest. There's nothing. The lights went out and that person that lived inside your son's body with a personality and a sense of humor, whose little boy kisses you can still feel when you close your eyes, whose pictures you will never take down, that soul that lived and loved and regretted and tried and failed and laughed and wept, oh, that was all for naught. Just meaningless happenstance. Without the resurrection of Jesus, that is the only story Ernest Becker says, resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. It means that there's a better story than the illusion of immortality and the brutal interruption of suffering. It means that there's a day coming when injustice is brought to an end and no one ever goes hungry again and no child ever gets trafficked again and no victim ever gets abused again and no mother ever sits at the kitchen table in tears again. It means that love gets the final word and that resonates with me. It speaks somewhere deep into my soul like Beethoven's ninth ringing out over the rubble in Berlin. Jesus and only Jesus makes suffering sufferable because he dealt with suffering by suffering and he made a way through suffering by suffering and he looks me in the eye in the midst of my suffering by suffering. Suffering is sufferable because I know this story ends not in mourning but in joy, not in separation but in union. And as a society, we've gotten really good at pretending, but the truth is death is our greatest enemy and death wins 100% of the time unless, unless there's a kind of love that outlives death. And finally, morality. Before I even dated my wife, I was friends with her older brother, Van. So yeah, it was complicated there for a minute, to be completely honest with you. So, Brand, so Van is more brother than brother-in-law to me. We grew up together as kids. We even lived together for a stretch in our 20s. And I can still remember that sunny Saturday in Nashville when we were teenagers. 
And Van and four friends packed into his car. They were going cabrewing. That's what it's called in Tennessee, at least. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're just floating down a river on a perfect summer day, tossing cheap beers back and forth to each other the whole way. Van's car was found at the bottom of an embankment lying on its roof that evening. Three of the passengers were taken straight to the hospital. Two of them had to be life-flighted by helicopter in an effort to save their lives. Van, the driver, was intoxicated and taken straight to jail. No one died, but there were injuries. And Van spent that night behind bars, sobering up, unable to stop seeing what had happened in his memory, unable to stop wondering about those three who'd been rushed not to the precinct, but to the hospital. Van never came all the way back from that night. Morality, philosophically speaking, is less a list of rights and wrongs and more how we live wedged between the shame and loneliness that no one, regardless of the virtues and vices you use to govern your life, no one gets to live immune to. And beginning that day, Van lived defined by shame and loneliness. Shame because he couldn't bear to see himself, much less allow himself to be seen in the presence of God. And loneliness because he never let anyone really know him, really see him again either. How could someone else love him if he couldn't love himself? To be fully known and unloved, that's unlivable. And so he settled where we all tend to settle, to be unknowable and therefore unlovable. Fifteen years after that accident, I was sitting in a hospital room at the foot of Van's bed. 48 hours prior, he'd gone to a walk-in clinic and searched for an antacid. He was struggling with this heartburn that he couldn't shake, and they discovered that he didn't have heartburn but a torn aorta. He was gushing blood internally. He was rushed in an ambulance to the ICU, and they were able to slow the bleeding, but the diagnosis was already fatal. In order to survive, Van's going to need this combination of surgeries that no patient has ever survived in the history of this hospital. And so the doctors told us to say goodbye because barring a miracle none of them had ever seen, that's exactly what this was. So there I am, sitting at the foot of Van's bed on the last night of his life. There must have been 20 of us packed into that hospital room. No one's saying goodbye. We're all just laughing and telling stories and trying to bear the silences in between the way people do when they don't know how to say what they really want to say. The visitor's curfew was nine, and one by one, everyone left until I was the last one, sitting at the foot of Van's bed, on the last night of his life. And I can still see his face when he looked up at me, stained red with tears. And I can still hear him. I'm an addict. That's how he broke the silence. It's been more than 15 years since I went a single day without being drunk or high, usually both. It was that accident and everything that followed it. The story Van told himself about himself, the shame that dove into his gut like a parasite and the story that shame told through his life. It was a story he couldn't bear living, so he escaped it every day. And the thing about coping mechanisms is that they work, almost. The psychologist Dr. Vincent Felitti simply observes, it's hard to give up something that almost works. And what Genesis named fig leaves almost works. 
Escaping almost works. Hiding behind what makes me feel okay, what makes me feel in control, what makes me feel like the author, it almost works. Throwing myself into my career or my kids or my social calendar or my appearance or my reputation or a bottle of something strong, all of it almost works. Pick your poison, it almost works, but it doesn't work. And you can admit that in desperation or you can just admit it in honesty, but whatever you are using to cope will be shown as weightless as it actually is when you're desperate or when you're honest. So at the end of his rope, in a moment of utter desperation, Van came out of hiding. In the face of all that loneliness and shame that had defined him for so long, he became known. Known by someone else for the first time in 15 years, known by the God he'd expended so much energy hiding away from, protecting his naked, vulnerable self from ever being seen by, Van came out of hiding. And when he did, in a way that we both experienced, but is really hard to explain, the presence of God began to fill that room. The resurrected Jesus in the 50 days between his resurrection and his ascension uh, makes over 500 appearances to different people. He's got this habit of just walking uninvited into rooms. And the risen Jesus still does that. Still walks into rooms, calling the names of his children who are hiding. Calling them out of their shame and out of their loneliness into being seen, into being known. Some of you can feel that happening right now. Like your name is being called out of whatever you're using to cope, to be seen, to be known. And the risk and self-consciousness and the deep longing that comes into you at the same time, it's something like afraid and yet filled with joy. First John four, perfect love drives out fear. You see, love overwhelms fear for everyone courageous enough or desperate enough to come out of hiding. And this isn't a love that dismisses our wrongs, but a love that overcomes our wrongs with forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's way of restoring to you the Genesis worth that he gave you at first without you needing to prove yourself. Forgiveness is why resurrection is about God being loving enough, not you being good enough. The only way that we can avoid God's forgiveness is to stay hidden, to keep on coping, to convince myself again today, I can sort this out all on my own, I just need a little bit more time. You see, resurrection is about loneliness and shame because it brings them to an end. It turns hiddenness into a lie and being seen into coming alive. The surgeons wept when they told us that Van had somehow survived the surgeries. He's an anomaly to this day in the hospital records. And I can remember sitting there alongside the family when the drugs wore off and they pulled the breathing tube out of his throat and he (coughs) (coughs) Did I make it? (laughs) I honestly can't remember who told him he was alive. But when they did, what he said next, it came out as clear as day. He loves me so much. If Van was here telling his own story today, he'd want to make sure that I told you that he did not wake up to happily ever after. 
After that, it was not a perfect life, not an easy life. The fight of his life was still ahead of him, but what he woke up to was a life he actually wanted to live forever because he was finally made whole, out of hiding, reunited to God, reunited to people, the devastating consequences of sin replaced by the gift of resurrection. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus is ultimately all about, the fixed, loving gaze of God that casts out fear. In the words of the contemplative Thomas Keating, if we have not experienced ourselves as unconditional love, we have more work to do because that is who we really are. So I'll close with this. Where did Jesus go when he walked out of that tomb? I mean, he's just risen from the grave. He's in a supernatural, resurrected body. Where's the first place he goes? Jesus spent the first ever Easter Sunday on the road to Emmaus next to two disappointed and disillusioned ex-disciples who tried to cope, which almost works. And there have been plenty of artistic depictions of that walk, which was recorded in Luke 24, but this one's my favorite one. The two disciples in plain view, Jesus, just an outline, a veiled image. He's with them. He's with them every step of the way, but they're having a whole lot of trouble recognizing him. It took all day before they noticed him. And so he gave them all day. And then when they did, their hearts began to burn with a love that overwhelmed the fear that was driving them away. In a single word, resurrection is about love. It's about the God who walks beside you even while you walk away from him, content to wait for you to recognize him whenever you're ready. It was love that endured the cross. It was love that pushed back the stone. And when you realize that all of that love, the love that created and the love that redeems is pointed directly at you, I think the best way to say it is afraid, yet filled with joy. Afraid because receiving this love means letting go of everything I've known, everything that's made me feel comfortable and safe and secure. And even if it's coping, at least I'm familiar with it. But filled with joy because it means reaching out to try to grab everything that I most deeply long for. So what do you make of all that? Is that the world's greatest hoax, some door-to-door salesperson after your credit card information? Or is it the courageous and resilient sound of hope atop the rubble of this broken world? Is that senseless romanticism? Or is it a profound moment of clarity? And where do you build your life? On all the ordinary hours or on that transcendent moment that pierces the monotony with hope? You get to decide. But I would just say this, that if this Jesus isn't the God that you know, He's too good to resist. He's too good to hold it together. He's too good to put off for another day.